Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we've got a, a giant, giant, giant portion of the Torah here, um, which is basically the birth of uh, Yaakov and, and Esav, and um, all the dynamics that that represents, and all sorts of questions like, why is it that Esav was the firstborn? I mean, we say Yaakov is the firstborn, and, and Yaakov buys the birthright to be officially the firstborn, but the first one out of the womb was actually Esav. So what is, what's going on there? You know, there's a, there's a lot of amazing things there. And what's the whole relationship between Yaakov and Esav? And what does that say about us in this world and, and the whole um, nature of the world? And what does it mean, this um, teaching from Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, that, uh, that it's a halacha, very interesting use of a word. Halacha usually means law, right? That it's a halacha that Esav hates Yaakov. What's that about? Like, what are all these questions? How does all of these things figure together? Um, so, so there's a lot to discuss. These are some questions, God willing, that we're going to get to. Um, I thought I might begin with just a personal story, just because this happened to me this week. And um, I, always like, I always feel like part of the nature of these talks is a, I feel like it's a spiritual diary. that I'm sort of like, kind of recording, kind of recording my progress through life trying to serve God and things like this. So, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to share it with you all. So anyway, hopefully, uh, hopefully, um, hopefully it's interesting to you too. But I'll just tell you this story just because, um, like I said, it happened this week and it was just very striking to me. So I was learning at this, uh, at this place for, actually I'd been learning there for quite a while, like just in the morning a little bit before going off to work. So... I overhear someone say, I don't remember who said it or anything like that, but I overheard someone, I don't think they told it to me, but I, I, I heard it, that there, it's a segula. What's a segula? It's a, um, a segula is like, a, like a, a, a special custom that you do that's supposed to open up gates that your prayer should be answered. So for instance, you'll have a segula for um, getting married. Or you'll have a segula for having a child. Or there will be a segula for health. Or there will be a segula for parnosa, for livelihood. So th- these are like different realms where, where you have like a lot of segulas, right? And the idea of a segula is sometimes it will be you say this certain um, uh, chapter of, uh, from the Psalms, this capital Tehillim, right? That would be one type of segula. Another type of segula would be like, for instance, there's a segula for an easy childbirth. So that's if a woman keeps malava malka, the meal after Shabbos, they say that's a segula for an easy childbirth. Okay, I believe that comes from the um, Noam Elimelech. And I heard that from Reb Shlomo. And you have even a segula, like different types of segulas. You even have a segula, speaking of the Noam Elimelech, that to put the, his safer, right, this, uh, the Noam Elimelech, that's the name of his, his book, but he was um, the Rebbe Reb Eli, Noam Eli, Elimelech, right, of uh, Lezhensk. So, but the Noam Elimelech, he's known more widely as, that you put that book under your pillow while you're giving birth. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and, that's, uh, and that's a segula that many people do. We, we did that with our, I think, our second child. I don't think we knew it by our first child, maybe. But we, in fact, one of my favorite stories about Reb Shlomo is, and this was told by um, 
by Ni'ila, his, his wife, who was give, giving birth at the time, that Reb Shlomo was actually just putting book after book under her pillow while she was giving birth. So can you imagine, like, there's like this whole stack of books happening while, while she was in the process of giving birth. So this is an amazing thing. But the, the classic segula there is, is, is the Sefer Noam Elimelech, right? So you have all sorts of segulas. And um, anyway, what's the idea of the segula? So you have to be careful with segulas, right? Because you shouldn't think that the blessing is coming from the thing itself. Like, in other words, not that you would think this, but you have to actually be conscious of the dynamics of these things. So let's just learn it through for a second. You, you shouldn't think that the blessing is coming from the book under the pillow, right? That, that's not what's going on, right? Um, what's happening is, or the blessing is coming from the food that you eat, or even the blessing is coming from the mitzvah that you're doing. In other words, there's no in-between between you and God. It's only you and God, right? The blessing, you have a direct relationship with God. So then what's the whole idea of the segula? The segula, so to speak, is giving wings to your prayer. It's giving like an extra kind of like jetpack to your prayer, right? So like, for instance, if you daven at the grave of a tzaddik, right? You're not davening to the tzaddik, because the tzaddik is not going to answer your prayer. But what you say is in the schus, in the merit of all the amazing things that this tzaddik did, that that should give extra merit to my prayer. In other words, again, it's just giving wings to your prayers. Okay? So with this in mind, so, um, you know, I, I overhear these people talking, and one says to the other, there's a segula for parnosa, meaning for cash, for livelihood, um, that... You take the Havdalah wine, like after you, you know, when you make Havdalah at the end of Shabbos, and, you know, just to say one quick thing about Havdalah, one thing that I think is so beautiful is that, you know, it says that, um, it says that, that, that Shabbos itself is, is, a, is a, a miniature of the Garden of Eden, right? It's a bit of Olam Abba. So, so when Adam and Chava, when Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden, it said that Hashem posted these fiery chayos, which are like very high angels, at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, and they had flaming swords, like these turning swords, flaming swords, stopping us from getting back in. So, so there you see something interesting, which is that Shabbos is like the Garden of Eden, and there's fire at the border of the Garden of Eden. So interestingly, when we enter the Garden of Eden on Shabbos, right, we, we light candles in the beginning of Shabbos, and we've got the Havdalah flame at the end of Shabbos. So it's sort of like this Garden of Eden that we've entered, there's fire at both ends, just like there is in the real Garden of Eden right now, you know? So we take the candle, and then we pour wine over it. That's how we extinguish it. And by the way, here's another segula, is to smell the candle after you extinguish it. And I'm not sure what that's a segula for, but we always do it. <laughs> um, you know what it is? Yeah. Also for childhood. Interesting, interesting. Someone told me that it was for memory. But you know what? It's all good. It's all good. Um, so, um, and I, Reb Shlomo would do that. You know and 
And I, I think I asked him about it, and he just said to me, because everything about Shabbos is good. That's, a, that's more or less what he said to me. He didn't get into more detail, but anyway. So now, here's the question. And before we go into my own sort of like uh, conjecture about this, this minig, let me just tell you the straight minig, okay? So you pour the, the wine over the candle, you extinguish the candle. If you want to smell the candle, you can, that's fine. But the question is, what are you doing now with, the, with this combination of, of uh, wine or grape juice and the, 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 the extinguished flame? Like, if you actually think about it, it's actually, you know, you know, not to get too mystical on you, but it's actually a, what you would imagine, a, like a potion, right? It's like the fire of Shabbos has been extinguished in this wine. Like, it's actually a pretty heavy, interesting, you know, recipe that you've just made there. But anyway, that aside, just to contemplate that for a moment. Um, and then, of course, the, the, the widely known custom is then to take, you take your pinkies and you dip it into that, that mixture and you put it over your eyes, right? And, um, you know, I had a kavana one time that it's sort of like, that, you know, that basically all week long, because now you're entering into the week, you should just see Shabbos, right? You know? And, and some people go further, they put it in their ears, they put it over their lips. I saw you could eat, some people even put it the back of their neck. The back of your neck is where they say is the, the loose bone. Right? The loose bone is fascinating in and itself, but I'll just give you a quick thing on the loose bone here. They say that when, the, um, when a person's skeleton, after 120, after we're buried, like basically most people, like certain sadikim, if you really were like a super holy person, your body doesn't decompose at all, right? But that's like a pretty rare thing, but it's happened and it's been documented. People have been tzaddikim at different times in Jewish history have been dug up and they've been dug up way beyond when they were buried and they're like whole. So, and it like, you know, like blows people's minds. So this has been documented. However, most people, the great majority of people disintegrate and turn their bones eventually turn into powder. But there's one bone that they say absolutely doesn't disintegrate and that's the loose bone. And um, they even say that they tried to, 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 uh, to destroy it. And they took like a big black hammer's like, like anvil and they tried to smash it and they couldn't smash it. So they say that this is an indestructible part of the body. Why? What's the point? Because for most people, when Techias Hamesim comes, meaning to say the resurrection of the dead, that that will be the physical remainder of the body that's used to resurrect the dead. Now, that's interesting in and of itself, but here's the super cool part for us, because at that point, we're going to be powder, I guess, so we're not going to be so aware of the process. However, however, listen to this part, and the Mishnah Brewer brings this, which, is, which, is, which I love, because the Mishnah Brewer is, is a straight halacha book. That's like the most... Litvish, seemingly non-mystical book of Jewish law. That's sort of like our most contemporary iteration of the Shulchan Aruch is the Mishnah Brewer. And the Mishnah Brewer brings the following thing, which is that, and it's not his idea, but he incorporates this in the Mishnah Brewer, which, is, which makes it normative Torah life, 
period, if the Mishnah Brewer, Brewer is bringing it. And that's, of course, a book by the Chovitz Chaim. Um, that the food that we eat, Motzei Shabbos, at the Malava Malka, feeds the loose bone. That's the only food that we eat, that's the only thing that nourishes the loose bone, is the food that we eat Motzei Shabbos. So you're actually strengthening your eternity, you know? It's like, it's an amazing correlation, and, and I've tried to explain the connection between the two in the past, but I don't want to go there right now because I'm getting to another point. So now, the question is, what do you do with this wine? You've got this wine on a, on, a, on a little plate. And so here's the segula that I overheard that day, which is that you take it and you pour it out on your lawn. You pour it out on the grass. And that's a, And then what do you do? You say this pasuk from the Torah, this verse from the Torah, it's actually in Breshis in Genesis chapter 26, um, verse 12. Yitzchak, right, Isaac, sowed in that land, Oh, by the way, just to set the scene here, it was a time of great famine in Israel. Okay? So it says, Isaac sowed, meaning planted. Isaac sowed in that land, and in that year he reaped a hundredfold. Thus had Hashem blessed him. And then the next Pasuk, and that's the end of the second Aliyah, and the beginning of the third Aliyah is, the man became great and kept becoming greater until he was very great. Okay, that's so it's, that's like the last Pasuk of, for, uh, for the second aliyah and the first pasuk of the third aliyah. So you're supposed to say that pasuk. So now, so now I can, that was all background for the story. <laughs> so here's the story. So I heard about that. And when I heard about that segula, and this was years ago, and it was at a time actually where, you know, things were especially rocky financially for me. And I thought, wow, you know, here's this segula for Pernosa. I never even heard of this. And by the way, I think it's a pretty unusual segula. I don't think that many people know about this. And then I had the weirdest reaction when I heard this, which is I started davening like crazy, but like, like in a way that really surprised me. Like I may have even been crying. I don't even know. I don't even know, but I just remember it was a particularly intense davening that I did after I heard this, that I should be able to do this segula. Which, to this day, is just like I, I, I hear myself saying these words and I just scratch my head. Why would I have had such a reaction? Like, when have I ever heard about a segula and then davened I should be able to do this? Like, okay, no, so you take the, you take the plate with the wine and you pour it out on the ground. Like, what's the big deal, you know? Anyway, I'm just telling you what happened. That Motsi Shabbos, I'm at the house. Right? I don't know how many days after that was, but that first Motzei Shabbos. And I start toward the door with the plate, and my wife says, where are you going? I said, I'm going to go and spill it outside. She's like, no, 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 we've had this huge problem with ants, and this is like sugar water, and it's just going to be a magnet for ants into the house, and absolutely not. <laughs> and I was like, and I mean, you know, it was like, <clears throat> like the, like the, it was like an iron gate that slammed down. <laughs> and I was like speechless. I didn't know what to say. Like, you know, like you at this point. Let me just say for just for 
our own marriages and marriage education, whatnot. That's not a time to make an argument. You know, you don't, that's not, because then you're basically uprooting the whole Kedusha and the holiness of whatever you're trying to accomplish. And it all, you know what I mean? To make a fight at that point, not only that, but by the way, just as an aside, but it connects to what I'm saying right now, Rebbe Nachman says that a lot of times, right when you're becoming anger, angry, there's a blessing of parnosa, of livelihood, of money, coming down at that moment. At the moment that a person is becoming angry, and if you're able to control your anger, that that's basically a blessing to keep the, the pipes clear, basically. You know? So all the more so, all the more so to have made a, a fight at that point just just was completely antithetical. So I didn't say anything, but I felt like my heart fell because I felt like I felt like this is not a great sign. <laughs> That's how I felt. I felt like it wasn't a great sign. And then I sort of understood, like in retrospect, like this whole thing. Why I maybe why I had been davening so intensely. You know, because maybe I had sensed that there was going to be real opposition there. And who knows? I, I, I don't know. I'm just, just babbling at this point. Okay. Mm-hmm. But there's more to the story. There's more to the story. So anyway, maybe, maybe a couple years later, like I say, it was, it was, a, it was a rocky time. Money-wise, you know, and uh, I got a job. Thank God. And uh, so things, you know, it was just a little more calm and stuff like that. And I thought to myself, okay, now now I'm going to try it again. Also, we haven't had ants in the house, thank God, can I know her, like in a, in a while, in a long time. So it just seems like the gates are open, you know. So I started Motzei Shabbos, just going to the little yard and just pouring it out. By the way, just as an aside, we have these two little lemon trees. They're tiny. They're like probably come up to my hip, right? One next to the other. And because one is closer to the house, so I thought, well, I can, I, I, I can pour it anywhere. It's not a big backyard. It's, it's actually very, very small, but, but I can pour it anywhere, but let me pour it by the tree. So, because maybe that will water the tree or something like this. I don't know. So I, I and interestingly, this year, that, that tree has lots of lemons. The other tree has zero lemons, not a one. But anyway, this, this is all anecdotal, as they say. You know, I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm just telling you what's, mm-hmm. what's going on. So, so I poured out there, and, and then I daven, right? And I daven. Well, you're supposed to say the Pusik now, right? Isaac sowed in that land, and in that year he reaped a hundredfold. Thus had Hashem blessed him, right? But, you know something, it's after Shabbos, and I haven't memorized the Pasuk, I would say it in Hebrew. And to, so I, I would just say, you know what, I, ju- I would just paraphrase it. I would just daven to Hashem. I would say, just like you blessed Yitzchak Avinu, that even in a time of famine, his crops flourished, so please, God bless all your children, and you know. And then I would, you know, daven, just start davening, right? People shut up, pernosa, and different blessings, right? Okay. So I've been doing that for maybe, I don't know. Let's say two years. Maybe it's a little longer. Anyway, so the the 
expiration date on this job has been coming up that I've been doing. And they've been telling us, like, for a while, they're going to let us know if they, they wanted to continue at all. So, you know, this has been hanging in the air. You know, with, with, uh, with TV shows, it's not so obvious. Are they going to want to do more of them or not? So, so it's kind of been hanging in the air for a while, for actually for a few months. And then they're like, okay, we're going to tell you around now. They weren't actually telling us when, but we're going to tell you around now. So now, so now listen to this. They announced it this past week. And, um, and they said that, thank God, Ruch Hashem, that they want to do some more episodes. So thank God. And they announced it the week of, that this, of, of, of this line from the Torah. But it's more than that. Because, because, you know, there's seven days in the week, and a lot of ways that the people learn the Parsha of the week, the portion of the week, is that they say, okay, Sunday we'll learn the first Parsha. Monday we'll learn the second Parsha. And so there's seven aliyahs, right? So seven por- so they subdivide it into seven, and they, they'll do one a day. So the day they announced the thing is the day in the Torah that that Pasuk appears in. So it wasn't just the week of that blessing for Parnas, but it was the exact day that that, that that verse appears in the Torah. So anyway, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that. You know, you know, I remember, uh, I, I remember Reb Shlomo said one time, I remember thinking that, you know, I, I, I like comic books, uh, or at least I don't really read them anymore, but I, I enjoy them just as art forms at this point, you know, just as collectibles. Um, and, uh, you know, I always love the origin episodes, you know, like the, where you find out how the person got their superpowers or how they started off and became who they are. And I, when Rib Shlomo told this story, I remember thinking that this is in a way kind of like his origin story, you know what I mean? Not exactly. I mean, you could really say, point to, you know, a dozen different things and call that his origin. But this, this particular one I thought was interesting. He was taking a course, a, a course at Columbia University, I think in the graduate school. Um, and, uh, and he was there at Columbia, and the person, there was some Jewish representative who stood up before the students there that had been gathered there, and he was one of the people there. And none of the students there looked like him. I mean, he looked like a real yeshiva man, you know? And the rest of the students, this was probably the late 1950s or mid-1950s around there, you know, looked however, you know, a, a secular college student would look. And the the person who was representing Judaism there, I think there were other representatives of different professors, he said something which was just so like anti-Torah, basically. You know? And here he was, you know, supposedly teaching Torah or teaching Judaism. And and so Reb Shlomo said that he went up to the guy and he 
he said, I'm sorry, brother. He whispered in his ear, I'm sorry, brother, but I'm going to have to knock you off. <laughs> <laughs> and then he then spoke before the, the group and basically, you know, opened everyone's hearts and minds to the Torah, you know? And, uh, and I think, there's one more detail, I think that he, as this person was lecturing, see, this is actually a, a bit of a problem that, you know, that you find that, that uh, when, when someone like that, who's sort of a, an academic authority, and I'm putting academic in, in heavy quotation marks of Judaism, and they see someone who's actually, you know, living it, you know what I mean? Like I say, Reb Shlomo, you could see just by the way he was, his, his physical appearance was someone who was actually immersed in it and was actually living it. People like that become very insecure because they realize compared to someone like that, they really know very, very little. And it becomes even more sort of like a delicate matter when they've actually risen in the ranks of academia and they're being sort of, so to speak, exposed of how little relatively they know. You know what I mean? So it becomes an even more delicate situation, you know? So, and you find that also de denominationally, you know, like you have reform, conservative, reconstructionists, and things like that, people who are leaders of large congregations. But relatively speaking, they, you know, with all due respect and covet, I'm sure they're doing great things, just don't have the depth of learning that some that 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 other people have, and it's you know it's it has to be handled very very delicately and sensitively, but the people themselves they know that there's a big gap in disparity, and so so anyway anyway, um, so 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 he, he went and he 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 told people the following. He said, and this always stayed with me, he said, you see, if you just hit someone over the head with this question, did God give the Torah to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai? Right? And especially if someone hasn't really thought about it and investigated it and learned about it and all the rest, and they're coming from a pretty, you know, secular background, they're, they're thinking about it in the context of a historical event, and they've got no real context for it. So it seems so miraculous that they go, well, I don't know. I mean, it sounds, I don't know. I mean, really? I, it sounds pretty crazy, you know? But then as you learn about it and everything like that, and you realize, well, then where did the Torah come from? And where did all these, and where did the Jewish people come from? Where did the world come from, for that matter? And if you have a God, is he communicating with it? You know, once you contextualize it, then all of a sudden it's sort of like, well, yeah, why not? You know? So, so what Reb Shlomo said was, he contextualized the, 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 the whole giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai with this one simple question. And this is what I loved. And this is what he said to the people at the, at the Columbia University gathering. He said, the question is, do you believe that, that God is in an ongoing conversation with his creation? And just when you phrase it like that, is God, do you believe God is in an ongoing conversation with us?
Like, to me, that just changes absolutely everything. You can't even imagine how many textbooks are being boiled down to that one incredibly relatable, emotionally evocative question. And I think that most people would say, if they really thought about it, yeah, God, God is in, 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 in an ongoing conversation with his world. If you think about your life, you know, you think about all sorts of things, right? And then if that's the case, then all of a sudden everything that you've learned about in Jewish history makes total sense. And it's just part of that ongoing conversation. So, so, a lot of times we, we, we pray and then a lot of times we pray, we don't know, like, did the prayer work? Did it not work? I'm waiting. Maybe, like, who knows? And I think on some level, it's sort of like, let's bless you. What, what is a, a conversation? You know, a conversation is, you say something, I listen, and I respond to what you said. Right? So I feel like the fact that the blessing came down on pinpointed on the on the on the on the pasuk itself on the time of the verse itself in the Torah was a sign that oh it's not just you know you're just kind of like praying but but there's a conversation going on you know God's saying yeah I, I heard your prayer you know like and and it's a it's a it's a validation that there's that there's a an actual conversation see a lot of people and if you uh, if you if you if you listen for this, especially in yourself, this isn't so that you should try to criticize other people, but just look at yourself. Um, uh, this is a tool to evaluate um, your own conversation. Here's what most interactions are. I think they're not conversations. A person speaks, and the other person just waits till you finish talking so that they can say what they want to say. <laughs> That has the appearance of a conversation. <laughs> it follows the rules of a conversation without actually being a conversation. A conversation is when you are responding to what the other person has said in some way, right? By the way, I think that there's a, a nice, beautiful, just related to this as an aside, but a nice thing. In other words, a nice sort of like positive personality trait that to, to always make sure that you respond to someone if they ask you a question. You know, sometimes people just feel as though they, they're under no obligation to even say yes or no. <laughs> always make sure if someone asks you something that you're responding to them, even if it's just yes or no. Because to not acknowledge someone, there's something... There's something wrong to that, you know? Even if it's not a lengthy response. Okay. So now, that's, that's that part. Let's go into a new part. I want to, um, I want to just uh, share something that, that, uh, that this is a question. Uh, I'll read you the Pasuk, um, the verse from the Torah, but this question that I'm going to ask 
has been asked on this verse since the Torah was written. <laughs> okay, it's a very, very, very old question. The Medrash asks this question, the Medrash gives answers. The different Rebbe's over the millennia have given answers to this. I'm going to give my own answer to it right now. But um, maybe it's an old answer, but, but no one told me. So, so once you hear the question, you're going to ask the question too. Okay? So uh, just so, so that you're listening for the right thing, there's a huge redundancy in the verse that you're about to hear. Okay? And this is the way Parshish Todos begins. And these are the offspring of Yitzchak, son of Avraham. Avraham begot Yitzchak. Right? So you don't need to say Avraham begot Yitzchak. You have all the information you need right here. And these are the offspring of Yitzchak, son of Avraham. What do you need this extra PS? Avraham begot Yitzchak. We just said that he's the son of Avraham. Of course Avraham was the father of Yitzchak. We just said it. So why that redundancy? So many, many, many answers have been given to this. So I want to give my own. Okay? So, so what does it mean Yitzchak is the son of Avraham? So, so basically I want to just sketch out the following. You see, we have an internal reality and then you have the external reality, the actual real world that we live in. In other words, you have what's called subjective reality, which means your own private thoughts and this whole world within your head, right? And then you have the real world that you live in. And most of the time, for most people, I would say that the world, the reality that you imagine inside your head does not match the objective reality that lives outside of you the real world that you live in. You want it to match, by the way. You want it to match. And, and how do you get it to match? Through Torah and mitzvahs. Then you can sync them up, okay? But usually, usually your internal reality doesn't match the objective reality, the outside reality. And so I want to tell you two stories that illustrate this point, okay? One is classic Hasidic story. Someone comes to a Rebbe and says, Rebbe, I don't believe in God. And the person says, why? And then the Rebbe says back to the person, you know what, I also don't believe in God. And the person is shocked, says, you don't believe in God? And the Rebbe says back, yes, the God that you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. Right? Meaning to say that this person's got such a cockeyed view of God, <laughs> right? And, and the Rebbe said, you know what? If, if that really were God, I also wouldn't believe in him. But the thing is, that's not God. Okay? So, so that's, that's, that's story number one. Story number two, also a classic story from the Dubna Magid. It's a great, um, a great master of giving parables to explain um, passages in the Torah. Um, said, you know, the, the, the mushal, again, a classic, classic parable, you know, a, a big ship liner pulls up and a very wealthy man gets out and piles of suitcases and this porter, you know, like runs, like this is like going to be a big, good client for me. He goes and he gets all the heavy suitcases and he's taking them to the, to the man. It's very, very heavy, very, very heavy. And he's going... 
And, and the whole time he's thinking, as he's struggling under the weight of all these things, he better give me a good tip, he better give me a good tip. And he gets to the man, and the, and the rich man says, that's not my baggage. My, I had like a small bag of diamonds, very light. <laughs> so, so the Dubna Magid says that this is us and Hashem, that a lot of us go through life, and we're, so to speak, shaking our fist at God, saying, you better give me a big reward for this, you better give me a big reward for this, right? You know, I'm carrying all these heavy mitzvahs, it's like killing me, you know? And God says, no, my mitzvahs are like a little bag of diamonds, they're very light, I don't... <laughs> You know, what, what have you been doing? I don't know what you, what's been in your head. So again, a lot of times our internal reality is not matching up with the actual reality. So, in, so, so who are we to understand God to be? God is the one who loves us the most. God is the one who's with us in, in all of our ups and downs. Right? You know, I was reminded of something yesterday just because I saw it happen with a, with a little baby in front of my eyes. And um, it's a teaching that was very dear to me, something that um, I learned from my baby son, <laughs> my firstborn child. And, uh, but I haven't said it in so many years. But it's on this subject. So, you know, when young children are, are born, they, they can't see very far. They just see like a little bit in front of them. And my son was crying, crying so hard, and I'm holding him, and I figure, okay, he's, he's hungry, you know, so, okay, let me get him a bottle. So I tell him, you know, I'm getting you a bottle, you know, and I'm, 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 I'm preparing the bottle, and he's crying, 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 and I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing what he wants. He, he wants a bottle, and I'm getting him the bottle, and, 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 and yet he's crying, 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 and, you know, the, the bottle now is maybe a maybe a foot in front of his face, whatever it is, he's still crying, crying, crying. And then I put it in his mouth, ah, stops crying. And it hit me, you know, that so often God, that's us and God, that God is preparing our salvation right in front of us, but we don't have the eyes to see it. You know, like right now, like it could be like two people are talking and then, Oh, yeah, you know, I just saw so-and-so. You know, I think this person would be good for that person. You know what I mean? Like that conversation could be happening right now, right? Or, you know what? Great news. I just got this, this show picked up. Ah, now I need some writers. You know what I mean? Like, like right now the conversation is taking place. Which, but we don't have ears or eyes to see it. But our salvation is being prepared right in front of us. Like here was my son crying his eyes out because he wants a bottle. And the bottle is right there. It's being prepared right in front of him. He doesn't see it. So God, who is God then in terms of our internal reality, our external reality? God is the one who loves us the most. God is with us at every moment of our lives, right? Okay. So, so I think now returning back to this Pasuk, I want to suggest the following. So it says that Yitzchak was the son of Avraham. So Yitzchak 
understood Avraham to be his father. And you know what? Avraham really was his father. And then it says, Avraham was the father of Yitzchak. In other words, Yitzchak's internal reality actually matched his external reality. Who he perceived to be his father was in fact his father. So the Torah is telling us that 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 world that he had inside of his head actually matched what was going on in reality. And if you want to extend it, his father is father in heaven. Yes, father for real too. But you can extend it further. And that was the greatness of Yitzchak. You know, by the way, our rabbis teach that um, the blessing to sort of, that the blessings that came to Avraham Avinu, that Yitzchak was worthy of the same blessings. Like had there not been an Avraham. And that Yaakov was, was on his own, worthy of the same blessings, had there not been a Yitzchak and an Avraham. So each one of them individually merited the entire thing. So can you imagine their, each of their greatness? And it says that each one of them was like the Beis Hamikdash during their time. Like it was as if the Beis Hamikdash stood. Each one of them was like a Beis Hamikdash during their time. That they each had this, they were extraordinary spiritual, like mega giants. Okay. So now, I want to go on to a separate new thought, which is the questions that we actually began the talk with about Esav. Esav is an amazing, an amazing character because Esav is the, the twin of Yaakov. And yet it seems like Esav, like, wow, you know, Esav really, if you look in a lot of the Torah liturgy, really represents just outright the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, right? And, and if you learn more and more about Esav, you'll see that, you know, you know, he had this big struggle within him and didn't seem to really, really make it. He didn't, you know? But he, he certainly had the potential to be very amazing. And I saw something from the Orgadaliahu that I thought was really really a very, very interesting, very compelling explanation of why it is, because everyone has this question, how could it be that Yitzchak wants to give the blessing to Esau? Here he has this like, this, this like amazing child in Yaakov. Isn't it obvious that Yaakov is supposed to get the blessing? And of course, Yaakov has to disguise himself as Esau, which is just, I mean, you know, Kabbalistically, there's just the, the most far out amazing things going on in terms of Yaakov disguising himself as Esav to get the brucha and just, anyway, but let's just stay on this one point. Why would Yitzchak want to give um, Esav the blessing? So I heard a Torah from your father, from Yitzchak, right? Years and years ago. He said that he was waiting for him to the last minute to do tshuva. Right? So that's, that's one explanation. I always like that explanation. But, um, but here's from the Orgadal Yahu, which is that uh, the Orgadal Yahu says, why, what, 
what's good about a blessing? Right? We go to holy people for a blessing. We want a blessing. We know in our soul it's good to get a blessing. But why? What, what's going on with a blessing exactly? So the Orgadaliahu says that what it, a blessing does is it strengthens the good within a person. That's, that's what's going on with a blessing. And that Yitzchak knew that Yaakov didn't need any help. <laughs> that he basically was like launched. But he understood Esav needs help. Esav needs the blessing. See, now, that's, this is a very interesting um, explanation. It might not sound like a huge chiddish, but it is a huge chiddish. Because normally speaking, the way we approach the subject is like this. The one who gets the blessing, the premise of who gets the blessing is who had more merit. Right? And so, so since it's, it's obvious that Yaakov had more merit, it becomes very perplexing why he would want to give it to Esau. Right? That's usually how we approach the question. But the Orgadaliahu is sort of changing the rules right now. He's saying, no, the function of a blessing is to assist someone in their struggle. And so since Esav had a bigger struggle, far and away, he's the one who needs the blessing. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, with that in mind... Listen to this. The Pasuk then goes on to say that um, he smelled something. <clears throat> so, he, so, so Yaakov disguises himself as Esav, right? And uh, one of the explanations that I heard of that is that, you see, Judaism is so interesting. And, and we've talked about it in other contexts, but really you see it in an amazing light in this instance right here. We've talked about how the holy people of other traditions remove themselves from society. Like in Eastern traditions, many times, like the, the classic representation of the guru is someone who's on a mountaintop, separated from society. Or again, like a priest who doesn't have a wife or children, right? Separating himself from family life. That in, 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 their, in, in, in these traditions, separation from the world is considered holier. Whereas by Judaism, it's the opposite. You want to actually be very much involved in this world, and then you lift up the whole physical world and the physical realms around you. Which, if you think about it, is great. I mean, that just makes so much sense. Like, why would God put us in this world and then tell us, don't be part of the world? Why would God give us a desire to have a husband or wife or kids or whatever it is and then tell you to not engage in that? Like it, It's just much more intuitive that you're supposed to be in the world and then to lift up the world, to, to reveal God's oneness in the world. This, this just makes sense. So... I don't have a key, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, no problem. So Yaakov has to disguise himself in order to get the blessing. Meaning to say, he's got to play this real world 
instance of intrigue on some level. He has to be up for whatever it means to navigate these very difficult social, political, whatever it is, like moments, and figure out a way to rise to the top, to make sure that good triumphs, at the risk of his own life, by the way. Because he says to his mother beforehand, if Yitzchak realizes what I'm trying to do, that I'm tricking him, essentially, he's going to curse me, I'm going to die. And then Rabbi Tzvi Freeman pointed out something amazing. He said that Rivka's response to that was, I'll take the curse. And then Yaakov says, okay, then I'll do it. And then he says, well, wait a second. Oh, you know, we just sort of like fly by that moment. <laughs> like, like if, if a person's mother, if your mother were going to say, okay, then I'll die. And you go, okay, great, let's go. Like, get in the car. <laughs> You're going to die and not me? Okay, it's all cool. Let's go. Right? Like, like what's going on there? Certainly not callousness. That's obvious, but then what's the explanation if it's not callousness? So Rabbi Freeman said, what's going on is, at that point when, when Rivka said, I'll take the curse, Yaakov understood how enormously important it was for him to do this. My mother's willing to die for this? Okay, so then for sure I have to do it. Right? And with that in mind, we'll throw in something else, which is that Esav, the, the Gomorrah says, Esav actually had a very big merit. He had one area where he was like the world champion, and that was honoring his father. Right? Like it said that he always put on, like, like he, he just did all sorts of amazing things for his father. And, um, and he would even like ask like very insightful Torah questions to his father and things like this, you know? So, so, so the way I heard Rabbi Sauer explain it was that if you want to uproot Asaph's claim for the blessing, Asaph has a big merit, which is honoring his father. You have to match him in that mitzvah and even top him in that mitzvah. So, I, your mother, because the mitzvah is honoring your father and your mother, I, your mother, am asking you to risk your life in order to do my request. So now, when Yitzchak is doing it, not only is he doing the mitzvah of kibbut Ave'im, but he's risking his entire life for that mitzvah, and by doing so, he was topping Esav in Esav's top merit. Esav's top merit was honoring his father and his mother. Now, Yaakov was going to risk his life in order to do that mitzvah, which tops Esav, which allows Yaakov to get the mitzvah. Right? So that's, that's another way of, of understanding some of the dynamics here. Um, but, but now listen to this. We want to go back to the Orgadaliahu, the right? The Orgadaliahu says that... Um, 
You know why Yitzchak is giving the blessing to Esav? Because um, Esav, because a blessing in, strengthens your good, and Esav needed to have his good strength, and Yaakov didn't need it, so he's giving it to to uh, to Esav. So now um, Yitzchak isn't so sure that this is Esav, right? Now remember, he had disguised himself. He had put like goat hair on his forearms so that he should seem really hairy and, you know, all this stuff. And, and uh, you know, Yitzchak is like, is that you, Esav? Like, you know, what's going on? And he says, come here, I want to smell you, right? And then he says that he smelled his clothes, all right? And then he blessed him. This is um, in, in Breshis, Genesis 27, verse 27. So he drew close and kissed him. He smelled the fragrance of his garments and blessed him. Okay? Now the word for garments is um, bigadav. Okay? Now there's, uh, there's the, the same root for clothes is um, someone who betrays. And actually, if you think about it, just on the most simple level, your clothing kind of like, kind of cover up who you are. Like you can, you can dress yourself up like a beggar, or you could, and maybe you're a rich man. So your clothes are sort of, so to speak, it's like a betrayal. It's like a, it's a deceit, right? You're really a rich man, but you're, 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 you're walking around like a beggar. Or you could be really a beggar, but you're wearing a $3,000 suit. So this is the, the reverse. Now you're sort of, it's another betrayal of people's understanding of who you are. You're, you're, you're comporting yourself like you're the, the, the president of some corporation, right? And in fact, um, interestingly, the word for um, uh, uh, for, so, so, so begging Begged, uh, you see, you see, begged is the, the words, begged, which means clothing, is the words base gimel dalit. Base gimel dalit. So what's, what's that missing? Aleph, right? We say aleph, base gimel dalit, right? Mm -hmm. So you're the aleph, and the clothes are the base gimel dalit. Your clothes go on you. <laughs> it's an interesting progression, right? You're aleph. Clothing is base gimel dalit, right? It goes on top of you. So, but, so, so the idea is, so the Medrash says that Yitzchak smelled that there would be some, be people who would betray the tradition. And then he gives him the blessing. So how does this link up to what we're talking about? And who are the people that we were talking about who would betray the tradition? So the Medrash says that he prophetically, Yitzhak prophetically sensed Yosef Mishisa. So Yosef Mishisa is like one of my heroes. Okay. And um, what's his story? Okay. They're saying Yitzhak sensed prophetically this person. This person who betrayed the Jewish people. And then, after he sends this guy, he gives Yaakov the blessing. Okay? I know we have a lot of question marks here, but let's just tell the story, an amazing story. 
The Romans had just conquered the Jewish people and they're getting ready to ransack and destroy the Beis HaMikdash, the second holy temple. All right? But the Romans are like, you know, I don't think we want to go into the Beis HaMikdash. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, maybe that's not such a good idea. Like, we're about to destroy, like, basically the portal between heaven and earth, right? So, on the one hand, they probably didn't believe it. On the other hand, they're thinking, eh, it could be true, you know? Like, how can we hedge our bets? So, they, there was a Jew, Yosef Mishisa, who was helping them, right? He was uh, someone who had betrayed the Jewish people. He's actively helping the Romans to the point where he's helping them destroy the base of Migdash. Like, at this moment, they're about to destroy the base of Migdash, okay? So, just gives you an insight of who he was, okay? So they have an interesting plan. They said, you know what? If a Jew goes into the Beis HaMikdash first and begins the ransacking, then, then God's going to be so mad at the Jewish people, he's not going to worry about us. And then we can go in and finish the job. Right? So let's send in Yosef. Let him begin the looting. And then all of our problems are solved. So they say to Yosef, you go in, take whatever you like, and it's yours. So he runs into the Beis HaMikdash, and he comes out, like, you got to love him for this. you got to absolutely love him for this. With the golden menorah. <laughs> now, the golden menorah was carved from one piece of gold, was this giant piece of gold, you know, sculpted with, you know, I mean, it was like amazing. And he's carrying this thing out. And the Romans are like, not that! No! No, that's ours! You can't know! You know, and they say to him, go and get something else. And now, Yosef says, no, I, you know, no. He said, I already angered God once. I can't do it again. And they said, we'll let you collect taxes for three years. So I guess there must have been, I guess whoever was the tax collector got a portion of the taxes. So in other words, that was great riches they were guaranteeing him. We'll let you collect taxes for three years. And he said, no. And he said, I'm not going in period, end. He was doing tshuva. He was doing tshuva. They put him on a wooden beam and they sawed him in half and killed him. And to the end, he was doing tshuva. So... So the Medrash says that Yitzchak smelled on the garments. Remember, the word for garments is the same word as betrayers. Yitzchak smelled on the garments that there would be a Yosef Mishisa. And what did we say the Orgidah said was the, the essence of a blessing? That you give someone a blessing in order to help them with their struggle. So now we can understand this Pasuk. So he drew close and kissed him. He smelled the fragrance 
of his garments and blessed him. In other words, he smelled the betrayers that were going to come out of Yaakov's lineage in the, in the distant future. And then he blessed him. Because once he saw that there were going to be people like that, he understood that they're going to need extra spiritual help. So through Yaakov, he was putting in the blessing, the extra light that would manifest itself generations later in order to help all of us to this room today overcome whatever challenges we're facing in our life. So, you know, my father-in-law, he, in his words, got Musser from, I believe it was from the Ger Rebbe. And the Ger Rebbe said to him, you know, saw that he wasn't wearing, uh, dressing in the classic um, sort of like Hasidic garb. He, my, my father-in-law was, Allah Shalom, Shalom Yeshua ben Rav Moshe, he was a, a Rav, um, and he was a head of the Kashrus organization in Brooklyn, big job, and a lot of mysterious nefesh his entire life for Torah and mitzvahs. And um, anyway, but he dressed in the more sort of contemporary, like, like with a short coat, not with a long coat, right? With a regular contemporary type blazer as opposed to a long coat. And the Ger Rebbe said to him, I'm, I'm giving you Musser, meaning, you know, uh, an instructional bit of advice. He said, it's not for you, but I'm giving Musser to your descendants through you. Meaning to say that, that when his children or his grandchildren or whatever it is would then look at him, it would be a sign to them to be on the right path. Right? So, so this is something that we have to understand. Um, and at different times in our life, these, these words will be very meaningful. But if you're in a period in your life where these words are just too abstract for you, just as, as like the Kutzka Rebbe would say, put them on top of your heart so they're ready to fall in when you're ready for them. A lot of the choices that me, we make right now are going to influence the children and the grandchildren that we have and the great-grandchildren that we have. And it's um, a lot of lifestyle choices and things like this, you know? I think that's one of the really great things. I mean, the, we could talk forever about the greatness of Shabbos. But I think one of the really amazing things about Shabbos observances is that Shabbos will keep, will keep the Jewish people together. And it will keep your children Jewish, and it will keep your grandchildren Jewish. Um, because somehow Shabbos is, it's like it's its, its own world. When, when, when you're keeping Shabbos, somehow that becomes the heart of your entire lifestyle. And if you're not in that, it becomes very, it's a big question mark. Like, like the extent to which you can then sort of assimilate into regular society, becomes pretty extreme. You know, especially when we're talking a, a generation or two generations or whatever it is. So, so when you think about what kind of life that you're, you want to live, make one of those questions. What kind of life do you want your children to live and your grandchildren to live and things like that? You, you can't have complete control over that, obviously. 
but you can you can have kavana, you can have holy intention, right? And 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 it's meaningful. Um, you know, I think we're we're starting to get late here, so there, there there is more I wanted to tell you, but I mean we can talk about Yaakov and Esau forever, right? Happily, the next few parshas are about them, so mm-hmm. we can still get those thoughts in. Um, meanwhile, just everyone should have a great week. Thanks. Yeah.